Part 2, Chapter 8, Section 84 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, History of the Public Life of Jesus. Chapter 8, Events in the Public Life of Jesus, Exclusive of the Miracles. Section 84, General Comparison of the Manner of Narration that Distinguishes the Several Evangelists if before proceeding to the consideration of details we compare the general character and tone of the historical narration in the various gospels we find differences first between matthew and the two other synoptists secondly between the three first evangelists collectively and the fourth among the reproaches which modern criticism has heaped on the gospel of matthew a prominent place has been given to its want of individualized and dramatic life, a want which is thought to prove that the author was not an eyewitness, since an eyewitness is ordinarily distinguished by the precision and minuteness of his narration. Certainly, when we read of indefinite designation of times, places, and persons, the perpetually recurring then, departing from thence, a man, which characterize this gospel, when we recollect its wholesale statements, such as that Jesus went through all the cities and villages, chapter 9, verse 35, chapter 11, verse 1, compare with chapter 4, verse 23, that they brought to him all the sick people, and that he healed them all, chapter 4, verse 24 and following, chapter 14, verse 35 and following, compare with chapter 15 verse 29 and following and finally the bareness and brevity of many isolated narratives we cannot disapprove the decision of this criticism that matthew's whole narrative resembles a record of events which before they were committed to writing had been long current in oral tradition and had thus lost the impress of particularity and minuteness but it must be admitted that this proof, taken alone, is not absolutely convincing, for in most cases we may verify the remark that even an eyewitness may be unable graphically to narrate what he has seen. But our modern critics have not only measured Matthew by the standard of what is to be expected from an eyewitness in the abstract, they have also compared him with his fellow evangelists. They are of opinion not only that John decidedly surpasses Matthew in the power of delineation, both in their few parallel passages and in his entire narrative, but also that the two other synoptists, especially Mark, are generally far clearer and fuller in their style of narration. This is the actual fact, and it ought not to be any longer evaded. With respect to the fourth evangelist, it is true that, as one would have anticipated, he is not devoid of general, wholesale statements, such as that Jesus during the feast did many miracles, that hence many believed on him, chapter 2, verse 23, with others of a similar kind, chapter 3, verse 22, chapter 7, verse 1. And he not seldom designates persons indecisively, Sometimes, however, 
he gives the names of individuals whom Matthew does not specify. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, compare with Matthew chapter 26, verses 7 and 8, and chapter 18, verse 10, with Matthew chapter 26, verse 51. Also, chapter 6, verse 5 and following, with Matthew chapter 14, verse 16 and following. And he generally lets us know the district or country in which an event happened. His careful chronology we have already noticed. But the point of chief importance is that his narratives, for example, that of the man born blind and that of the resurrection of Lazarus, have a dramatic and lifelike character which we seek in vain in the first gospel. The two intermediate evangelists are not free from indecisive designations of time. For example, Mark chapter 8 verse 1, Luke chapter 5 verse 17, chapter 8 verse 22. Of place, Mark chapter 3 verse 13, Luke chapter 6 verse 12, and of persons, Mark chapter 10 verse 17, Luke chapter 13 verse 23 nor from statements that Jesus went through all cities and healed all the sick. Mark chapter 1, verse 32 and following, verse 38 and following, Luke chapter 4, verse 40 and following. But they often give us the details of what Matthew has only stated generally. Not only does Luke associate many discourses of Jesus with special occasions concerning which Matthew is silent, but both he and Mark notice the office or names of persons to whom Matthew gives no precise designation. Matthew chapter 9 verse 18, Mark chapter 5 verse 22, Luke chapter 8 verse 41, Matthew chapter 19 verse 16, Luke chapter 18 verse 18, Matthew chapter 20 verse 30, Mark chapter 10 verse 46 but it is chiefly in the lively description of particular incidents that we perceive the decided superiority of Luke, and still more of Mark, over Matthew. Let the reader only compare the narrative of the execution of John the Baptist in Matthew and Mark, Matthew chapter 14 verse 3, Mark chapter 6 verse 17, and that of the demoniac or demoniacs of Gadara, Matthew chapter 8 verse 28 and following and parallel passages. These facts are, in the opinion of our latest critics, a confirmation of the fourth evangelist's claim to the character of an eyewitness, and of the greater proximity of the second and third evangelists to the scenes they describe than can be attributed to the first. But even allowing that one who does not narrate graphically cannot be an eyewitness, does not involve the proposition that whoever does narrate graphically must be an eyewitness. In all cases in which there are extent two accounts of a single fact, the one full, the other concise, opinions may be divided as to which of them is the original. When these accounts have been liable to the modifications of tradition, it is important to bear in mind that tradition has two tendencies. The one, to sublimate the concrete into the abstract, the individual into the general. The other, not less essential, 
to substitute arbitrary fictions for the historical reality which is lost. If, then, we put the want of precision in the narrative of the first evangelist to the account of the former function of the legend, ought we at once to regard the precision and dramatic effect of the other gospels as a proof that their authors were eyewitnesses? Must we not rather examine whether these qualities be not derived from the second function of the legend? The decision with which the other inference is drawn is in fact merely an aftertaste of the old orthodox opinion that all our gospels proceed immediately from eyewitnesses, or at least through a medium incapable of error. Modern criticism has limited this supposition and admitted the possibility that one or the other of our gospels may have been affected by oral tradition. Accordingly, it maintains, not without probability, that a gospel in which the descriptions are throughout destitute of colouring and life cannot be the production of an eyewitness, and must have suffered from the effacing fingers of tradition. But the counter-proposition, that the other gospels, in which the style of narration is more detailed and dramatic, rest on the testimony of eyewitnesses, would only follow from the supposed necessity that this must be the case with some of our gospels. For if such a supposition be made with respect to several narratives of both the above kinds, there is no question that the more graphic and vivid ones are with preponderant probability to be referred to eyewitnesses. But this supposition has merely a subjective foundation. It was an easier transition for commentators to make from the old notion that all the Gospels were immediately or mediately autoptical narratives to the limited admission that perhaps one may fall short of this character, then to the general admission that it may be equally wanting to all. But, according to the rigid rules of consequence, with the orthodox view of the scriptural canon, falls the assumption of pure ocular testimony, not only for one or other of the Gospels, but for all, the possibility of the contrary must be presupposed in relation to them all, and their pretensions must be estimated according to their internal character, compared with the external testimonies. From this point of view, the only one that criticism can consistently adopt, it is as probable, considering the nature of the external testimonies examined in our introduction, that the three last evangelists owe the dramatic effect in which they surpass Matthew to the embellishments of a more mature tradition, as that this quality is the result of a closer communication with eyewitnesses. That we may not anticipate, let us, in relation to this question, refer to the results we have already obtained. The greater particularity by which Luke is distinguished from Matthew in his account of the occasions that suggested many discourses of Jesus has appeared to us often to be the result of subsequent additions, and the names of persons in Mark, chapter 13, verse 3, compare with chapter 5, verse 37, Luke chapter 8, verse 51, have seemed to rest on a mere inference of the narrator 
now however that we are about to enter on an examination of particular narratives we will consider from the point of view above indicated the constant forms of introduction conclusion and transition already noticed in the several gospels here we find the difference between matthew and the other synoptists as to their more or less dramatic style imprinted in a manner that can best teach us how much this style is worth matthew chapter eight verse sixteen and following states in general terms that on the evening after the cure of peter's mother-in-law many demoniacs were brought to jesus all of whom together with others that were sick he healed mark chapter one verse thirty two in a highly dramatic manner as if he himself had witnessed the scene tells that on the same occasion the whole city was gathered together at the door of the house in which jesus was at another time he makes the crowd block up the entrance chapter two verse two in two other instances he describes the concourse as so great that jesus and his disciples could not take their food chapter three verse twenty chapter six verse thirty one and luke on one occasion states that the people even gathered together in innumerable multitudes so that they trod one upon another chapter twelve verse one all highly vivid touches certainly but the want of them can hardly be prejudicial to matthew for they look thoroughly like strokes of imagination such as abound in mark's narrative and often as schleiermacher observes give it almost an apocryphal appearance in detailed narratives of which we shall presently notice many examples while matthew simply tells what jesus said on a certain occasion the two other evangelists are able to describe the glance with which his words were accompanied mark chapter three verse five chapter ten verse twenty one luke chapter six verse ten on the mention of a blind beggar of jericho mark is careful to give us his name and the name of his father chapter ten verse forty six from these particulars we might already augur what the examination of single narratives will prove namely that the copiousness of mark and luke is the product of the second function of the legend which we may call the function of embellishment was this embellishment gradually wrought out by oral tradition or was it the arbitrary addition of our evangelists concerning this there may be a difference of opinion but a degree of probability in relation to particular passages is the nearest approach that can be made to a decision in any case not only must it be granted that a narrative adorned by the writer's own additions is more remote from primitive truth than one free from such additions but we may venture to pronounce that the earlier efforts of the legend are rapid sketches tending to set off only the leading points whether of speech or action and that at a later period it aims rather to give a symmetrical effect to the whole including collateral incidents so that in either view the closest approximation to truth remains on the side of the first gospel while the difference as to the more or less dramatic style of concluding and connecting forms lies chiefly between matthew and the other synoptists 
Another difference, with respect to these forms, exists between all the synoptists and John. While most of the synoptical anecdotes from the public life of Jesus are wound up by a panegyric, those of John generally terminate, so to speak, polemically. It is true that the three first evangelists sometimes mention, by way of conclusion, the offense that Jesus gave to the narrow-hearted, and the machinations of his enemies against him. Matthew chapter 8 verse 34, chapter 12 verse 14, chapter 21 verse 46, chapter 26 verse 3 and following, Luke chapter 4 verse 28 and following, chapter 11 verse 53 and following. And, on the other hand, the fourth evangelist closes some discourses and miracles by the remark that in consequence of them, many believed on Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 23, chapter 4, verses 39 and 53, chapter 7, verses 31, 40 and following, chapter 8, verse 30, chapter 10, verse 42, chapter 11, verse 45. But in the synoptical gospels, throughout the period previous to the residence of Jesus in Jerusalem, we find forms implying that the fame of Jesus had extended far and wide. Matthew chapter 4 verse 24, chapter 9 verses 26 and 31, Mark chapter 1 verses 28 and 45, chapter 5 verse 20, chapter 7 verse 36, Luke chapter 4 verse 37, chapter 5 verse 15, chapter 7 verse 17, chapter 8 verse 39 that the people were astonished at his doctrine matthew chapter 7 verse 28 mark chapter 1 verse 22 chapter 11 verse 18 luke chapter 19 verse 48 and miracles matthew chapter 8 verse 27 chapter 9 verse 8 chapter 14 verse 33 chapter 15 verse 31 and hence followed him from all parts. Matthew chapter 4 verse 25, chapter 8 verse 1, chapter 9 verse 36, chapter 12 verse 15, chapter 13 verse 2, chapter 14 verse 13. In the fourth gospel, on the contrary, we are continually told that the Jews sought to kill Jesus. Chapter 5 verse 18, chapter 7 verse 1. The Pharisees wished to take him, or send out officers to seize him. Chapter 7, verses 30, 32, and 44, compare with chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 10, verse 39. Stones are taken up to cast at him. Chapter 8, verse 59, chapter 10, verse 31. And even in those passages, where there is mention of a favorable disposition on the part of the people, the evangelist limits it to one portion of them, and represents the other as inimical to Jesus. Chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. He is especially fond of drawing attention to such circumstances, as that, before the final catastrophe, all the guile and power of the enemies of Jesus were exerted in vain, because his hour was not yet come chapter 7, verse 30, chapter 8, verse 20. 
that the emissaries sent out against him overcome by the force of his words and the dignity of his person retired without fulfilling their errand chapter seven verses thirty two and forty four and following and that jesus passed unharmed through the midst of an exasperated crowd chapter eight verse fifty nine chapter ten verse thirty nine compare with luke chapter four verse thirty the writer as we have above remarked certainly does not intend us in these instances to think of a natural escape but of one in which the higher nature of jesus his invulnerability so long as he did not choose to lay down his life was his protection and this throws some light on the object which the fourth evangelist had in view in giving prominence to such traits as those just enumerated they helped him to add to the number of the contrasts by which throughout his works he aims to exalt the person of jesus the profound wisdom of jesus as the divine logos appeared the more resplendent from its opposition to the rude unapprehensiveness of the jews his goodness wore a more touching aspect confronted with the inveterate malice of his enemies his appearance gained in impressiveness by the strife he excited among the people and his power as that of one who had life in himself commanded the more reverence the oftener his enemies and their instruments tried to seize him and as if restrained by a higher power were not able to lay hands on him the more marvelously he passed through the ranks of adversaries prepared to take away his life it has been made matter of praise to the fourth evangelist that he alone presents the opposition of the pharisaic party to jesus in its rise and gradual progress but there are reasons for questioning whether the course of events described by him be not rather fictitious than real partially fictitious it evidently is for he appeals to the supernatural for a reason why the pharisees so long effected nothing against jesus whereas the synoptists preserve the natural sequence of the facts by stating as a cause that the jewish hierarchy feared the people who were attached to jesus as a prophet matthew chapter twenty one verse forty six mark chapter twelve verse twelve luke chapter twenty verse nineteen if then the fourth evangelist was so far guided by his dogmatical interest that for the escape of jesus from the more early snares and assaults of his enemies he invented such a reason as best suited his purpose what shall assure us that he has not also in consistency with the characteristics which we have already discerned in him fabricated for the sake of that interest entire scenes of the kind above noticed not that we hold it improbable that many futile plots and attacks of the enemies of jesus preceded the final catastrophe of his fate we are only dubious whether these attempts were precisely such as the gospel of john describes end of section eighty four